Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Speaking of Children's Church, I want to recognize the family that this, I think it's their last Sunday, but Seth and Andrea Sukup, they've done a lot of work with Children's Church. This is their last Sunday. God's calling them to be missionaries to Colorado Springs, of all places, but no, uh, we appreciate Seth and Andrea. I think it's been 11 years they've been at the church. Uh, they've served in a lot of different capacities. So after the service, make sure you go and say goodbye to Seth and Andrea, and we're thankful for all of the work that they've done, and their two kids, um, Sam and Joy, and so it's been a been a pleasure to have them be part of our church, and we will miss them as they, they leave. So Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Now some of you may suffer from age-related macular degeneration. Did I say that right, Crystal? Macular degeneration. She's, she works in the eye industry. Macular degeneration. It's a disorder caused by a disorientation of the macula. And may you ask, what's the macula? The macula is a small area in the center of the retina in the back of the eye. Macular degeneration causes severe vision loss. Now, there's a, there's a dry and there's a wet kind of macular degeneration. Wet macular degeneration comes on very suddenly. And if not dealt with, it can progress very quickly and it could cause some major problems. And so... The wet type of macular degeneration causes you to see spots in the center of your vision. It causes lines to become wavy. In other words, it's a medical condition that causes you to lose focus. Macular degeneration. Now, sometimes very successful companies can suffer from a kind of macular degeneration. They can lose focus on what's important and what they do best. Now, I'm not a coffee drinker, and I'm not a huge fan of Starbucks, although some of you may be coffee drinkers and Starbucks fans. But back in 2003, Starbucks was at their peak. And at that time, they decided to get into other areas besides coffee. They decided to make movies. They decided to get into music. As a matter of fact, they won eight Grammy Awards. And so they, they wanted to be the biggest thing in the entertainment industry. And what ended up happening was they lost focus on what they did best, which was make a good cup of coffee. So in 2008, they had some major problems. I don't know if you know this about Starbucks. They cut 18,000 jobs. They closed almost 1,000 stores. And their stock price fell from $39 a share down to $7 a share in 2008. Their company was in a free fall. They were about to tank and go out of business. And so in 2009, Starbucks decided to do something. Let's get back to what we do best. What did Starbucks do best? Make coffee. 
So they closed their stores for one day, all the Starbucks stores, and they retrained their baristas and said, this is a coffee maker. This is coffee. This is what we do as Starbucks. And so they relaunched with just one singular focus, coffee. They almost went out of business because they tried all these other things and they lost focus on what was the most important thing for them as a company, coffee. In a way, they had a somewhat of a corporate macular degeneration. They lost focus. Now, why do I bring up macular degeneration, losing focus, Starbucks losing focus on what they do best? Here's the issue. If we're not careful, we as believers in Christ can suffer a spiritual macular degeneration. We can lose focus on what is important. We can have our eyes fixed on a bunch of different things that may be good. Some of them may be bad, but we can lose focus. And that focus draws our attention away from Christ. Now let's think about where we've been the past few weeks in the Gospel of Luke. If you remember from last week, I put that painting up there, Raphael's painting of the Transfiguration. You have two events back to back. You've got Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, brilliant glory. The three disciples, Peter, James, and John, got to see Jesus in all of his glory. And then the voice from the Father came from heaven. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then down below in the real world, the other nine disciples were trying to cast out a demon in this epileptic boy and they failed miserably. If you remember last week, Jesus says this kind has to come out with prayer. And so we need to truly understand how Luke structures his material. What comes next? The disciples lose focus. They experience a spiritual macular the generation. And how easy is it for us, just like the disciples, to fall prey to pettiness, jealousy, competition, and pride. So, let's read what happens next. After the transfiguration, after they fail to heal this boy. Jesus heals the boy. The demon leaves. Let's pick up in verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. 
And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Losing focus. What I want us to do is I want us to explore three ways we can avoid the sin of pettiness, jealousy, competition, and pride, and how we can avoid losing focus the way the disciples lost focus. So, here's the first. The first thing we need to do, keep your focus on the cross. Keep your focus on the cross. Now, remember, Jesus had just healed this demon-possessed boy. And the crowds were amazed. Verse 43, they were all astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples. So they're excited, the crowds. Jesus is more popular now in his ministry than he ever was. Remember, he had just healed this boy. There was the feeding of the 5,000. He's he's at the height of popularity among the crowds because he's doing some amazing things. And what does Jesus do? Disciples, lest you be consumed with a desire for popularity and a desire for this frenzy of attention and the applause of the crowds, I'm going to command you and remind you for the second time, what my mission truly is. Now go back up to verse 21 and 22. Actually, look at verse 22. This is the first time Jesus had told them in this chapter. This is the first time. Verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the first time he told him his mission. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then here, in verse 44, what does he say? Let these words sink into your ears. It's very emphatic in the original language. You disciples, pay attention. Let what I'm about to say go into your ears deeply. Don't lose focus. Pay attention. I'm giving this to you for the second time in case you didn't catch it the first time. And what does he say? Very simply, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Delivered. Delivered. That's code word in the Bible for Jesus' betrayal, trial, and crucifixion. He's going to be delivered over to death on a cross. The Old Testament prophesied about this. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus would go to the cross. He would be delivered over to sinful men. 
He would hang there suspended on that cross for our sins, for our iniquity, for our transgressions. All of that would be laid upon him. He would take the full weight of God's justice against our sin. And Paul uses the same language. Romans 4.25 Jesus who was delivered, same word there, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus is going to be delivered to death on the cross. Jesus may be popular now with all of these followers. People are marveling at him. But he's soon to be arrested, persecuted, tried, beaten, and crucified. Now at this point, the disciples really had no idea what was going on. In their mind, the Messiah was to come and be more like an earthly king who would use military might, who would use political power, who would oust the Roman Empire, who would set up a kingdom literally in Jerusalem. That was kind of in their mind of what the Messiah would be. Not someone who would come and be arrested and tried and hang on the cross like a criminal. And we find out from this passage of Scripture that God actually purposely concealed this from them. Verse 45, they did not understand the saying and it was concealed from them. At that point in time, God the Father concealed purposely all the ramifications of the cross to them until after the resurrection when it all came to light. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's wanting them to not get so intoxicated on fame and popularity and the crowds, and the miracles, that they lose focus on what's the reality, what's the true thing, the cross. Keep your focus, disciples, on the cross. And that's a major temptation for us today. We're sometimes ashamed of the cross. We want to downplay sin. We don't want to talk about Jesus as the only way. We don't want to talk about repentance or sin or the need for an atonement because at the end of the day, we want to be popular. We don't want to offend. I know we would not probably say this out loud, but how many times did we remain silent when we should have spoken up? How often do we live in fear of what others will say instead of focusing on the cross. Because the cross is foolish. The cross is offensive to the world. Paul tells us that. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross, or the message of the cross is folly, is foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The message of the cross is moronic. It doesn't make sense. It actually is offensive if you think about it. Because what the cross does, it announces to people that they are sinners separated from a holy God. And they need to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus as the only way. And to surrender their lives to Christ as absolute Lord. And that they have to to, to believe that he's the only way of salvation. And if they don't do that, if they don't embrace Jesus, if they don't receive Christ, then they will die and go to an eternal hell that is an offensive message to the world the world views this message as and you've probably heard it before well that sounds kind of intolerant 
That sounds narrow-minded. That sounds bigoted. As a matter of fact, that actually, Pastor Sean, sounds hateful. That's borderline hate speech to say that. And I'm afraid that in today's evangelical church culture, there are many churches and pastors that don't want to focus on the cross. They don't want to offend. They're ashamed of the cross. They don't want to call people to repentance. They want a church that's very comfortable where you can show up and hear about how you can have a better life, but you're never confronted with your sin and your need for a Savior. And you never see your need for Jesus and the cross. We'll water things down to make church comfortable. Because after all, isn't that what we want, comfort? I've quoted this so many times, you're probably sick of hearing it, but listen to Charles Spurgeon again. This was, this was back in, let me see my notes here, 1888 he preached this sermon. If there should ever come a wretched day when all of our pulpits shall be full of modern thought and the old doctrine of a substitutionary atonement shall be exploded, then will there remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing? Shall we speak with bated breath because some affected person shudders at the sound of the word blood or some cultured individual rebels at the old-fashioned thought of sacrifice? Nay, verily. That means not in any way possible. Nay, verily. This is what Spurgeon says. We will sooner have our tongue cut out than cease to speak of the precious blood of Jesus. Cut our tongues out. We'd rather have our tongues cut out than to never stop talking about Jesus and the cross. And so for the disciples, Jesus says, let this sink into your ears. Don't lose focus. I'm going to the cross. It's all about the cross. The second time I'm telling you, disciples, it's all about the cross. Know nothing but the cross. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was his passion. Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. I want to know nothing but the cross. I want to boast in the cross. And then the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In this church, in your family, in your life, would you never lose focus of the old rugged cross? Jesus says, disciples, I'm going there. Don't be ashamed of the cross. Don't lose sight of the cross. Stay focused on the cross. 2 Timothy 1.8 Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Here's the problem. When we preach the cross, when you talk about the cross, when you stay focused on the cross, when you're all about the cross of Christ, it's going to bring persecution. It's going to bring discomfort. It's going to bring offense. But in the end, it's worth it. 
because Jesus is far more wonderful and powerful and glorious. And we will give an account to him on that day, not to the crowds. So here's the first thing about focus. Jesus says, let this sink into your ears. I'm about to be delivered up into the hands of sinful men. Keep your focus on the cross. Okay, second thing about focus. Number two, second, keep your focus off yourself. Keep your focus on the cross. Keep the focus off yourself. Now, right after Jesus says, hey, stay focused on the cross. Let this sink into your ears. They get into one of the dumbest arguments in the Bible. I mean, this is really dumb. Notice what happens next. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Did what Jesus say go in one ear and out the other? Were they just clueless? Instead of thinking about the cross, they start thinking about each other and who's the greatest. They put the focus off the cross and onto themselves instead of putting the focus on the cross and off themselves. Mike McKinley says this, How can it be that we who know the sacrificial love of Christ so often have the greasy fingerprints of pride all over our lives? The greasy fingerprints of pride all over our lives. Now, we don't know how this argument started. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I have an idea. This is Sean's sanctified imagination. It's my opinion. Here's my idea of how it happened. I could be wrong. Peter, James, and John come down that mountain. And what do they do? We got to be up on the mountain. You guys down here failed. You guys tried to cast out that demon and you failed. We got to be up on the mountain with Jesus. We're the inner circle. We're his favorites. Who knows? That, that could have been the conversation. Peter, James, and John were gloating that they got to go up on the mountain and the nine other ones failed. And so we really don't know. All we know is that it was a childish argument that showed their true colors of pettiness, jealousy, competition. R.C. Sproul says this, To want to be great in faith, to want to be great in service is a noble thing. But to want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God at the expense of other people is perversity. They're putting the focus squarely on themselves. And Jesus knows their hearts. Jesus, it says, Jesus knew the reasoning of their mind. Okay? Verse 47, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Jesus brings a child up there. Now, we don't know how old this child was, but probably a little toddler. Now, why a child? Why does Jesus use an object lesson? He could have just rebuked them, but he uses an object lesson. He brings a child and sticks a child up here. Why a child? Well, there's a couple of reasons I think Jesus used a child. First of all, in that ancient culture, just in that ancient culture, children were considered insignificant. It wasn't until they were old enough to contribute to the needs of the family by working on the farm or providing that they weren't really considered anything because a child wasn't really considered anything until they could help financially to the needs of the family. Now think about a child for a moment. Think about a toddler. Do you want your toddler to drive you home from church today? Do you want your toddler to order at the restaurant this afternoon? Do you want your toddler to vote for the next president? What what can toddlers do? Toddlers are helpless, they're insignificant, and they're needy. Now that's one of the reasons why I think Jesus gave a toddler 
That's what the disciples needed to be. They needed to be like a toddler, like a child. They needed to see their need. They needed to see their insignificance. They needed to see their weakness. They needed to see themselves in light of how they really were. Instead of trying to elevate themselves and be greater, they needed to see themselves like a child. But I think there's another reason. Children have implicit faith. Children just trust adults. Children are pretty gullible in a good way. I've told you the story many times about my son Aiden. Talk about implicit trust. We used to play this game when he was four years old. He'd stand on the kitchen counter. I'd step back and I'd say, Aiden, jump to your dad. Do you think your dad can catch you? Yeah, daddy. He'd jump out and I'd catch him. I'd step back a, a foot. You think I can catch you? Yeah, you can catch me, daddy. He'd jump out. I'd step back, and I wouldn't get back too far because I knew how far he could jump. But there was no hesitation of my son on the edge of the kitchen counter to jump because he knew implicitly that his dad was going to catch him. Children have that type of childlike faith that I believe what an adult tells me, and I just trust. So I think Jesus gives the illustration of a child for two reasons. Number one, they were insignificant, they were weak, they were lowly. But number two, they had just implicit trust. And so what Jesus is telling to the disciples is this. Listen, you need to be like this. Don't be childish. You're being childish with your arguing. Be childlike. See yourself as weak, see yourself as insignificant, and trust in me. Don't put the focus on yourself Put the focus on the cross. You must realize, disciples, you can't contribute anything to your salvation. You're helpless. You're hopeless. You must trust in me as your Savior. Here's a truth we need to understand. And these two, the first truth that we talked about relates to the second truth. Here's the point. The more you do focus on the cross, the more the focus will go off yourself. The more you focus on Jesus, the more the focus will be off yourself. The more you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the more your eyes will be off of yourself. Because when you put your eyes on Jesus, when you look at the cross, what do you begin to see? You begin to see your own rebellion. You begin to see your own sin. You begin to see your own pride. Your ego won't want to be in control. You're not going to argue about who's the greatest because the cross humbles you. John Stott said it this way, nothing in history or the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Keep your focus on the cross you'll keep your focus off yourself. When you focus on the cross, you'll begin to be overwhelmed with humility. And you'll ask that question. And you should ask that question. Why me? Jesus, why me? Why did you save me? Why did you show me amazing grace? I was a rebel sinner that spat in your face time after time. I don't deserve your mercy. Why? drives me to my knees in humility to know that you died for me. We sang it earlier. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? How can it be? 
This, this love is so amazing. And Paul even says that, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being great, I mean, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That should humble you that you were spiritually dead and he made you spiritually alive and he showered you with immeasurable riches of grace in the cross. That will humble you like nothing else. Jesus says to truly be great is to become like a child and humble yourself under the old rugged cross. It was read earlier, Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain How do you avoid pettiness? How do you avoid jealousy? How do you avoid trying to be all that and be great? How do you keep the focus off yourself? You focus on the cross. It cuts you down to your true size. You see yourself as you truly are, a sinner deserving hell, but Jesus saved you by grace and mercy, and all you can do is live in thankful humility, not in pride. So, Number one, keep the focus on the cross. Number two, keep the focus off yourself. Here's the third. Keep your focus on the true enemy. The true enemy. Now, as we look at verses 49 and 50, there was a freelance man casting out demons in Jesus' name. And and for some reason, this really bothered John. Okay, because John speaks up. Hey, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. John didn't like this, that there was some guy out there casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so he tries to stop him. Now, why would John want to stop a man casting out demons? Isn't that a good thing? Like, wouldn't John be excited? Hey, demons are being cast out. This is a wonderful thing. Satan's not winning here. He's losing because demons are being cast out. This is a wonderful thing. But notice John's heart. Read it carefully. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. He doesn't say he does not follow with you, Jesus. He does not follow with us. He's not part of our group. He's not one of the elite 12. This is an elitist mentality. This is thinking that they alone have the corner on truth and ministry and that nobody else can do ministry. And what's so ironic, (laughs) what had just happened? They couldn't cast out the demon of this little boy. They're in no position to be telling this other guy, hey, you surely shouldn't be casting out demons in Jesus' name when they just failed themselves to do it. They were in no position of authority to do that. So who is the true enemy? Let me ask you the question. Who is the true enemy? Is it other believers or is it Satan? Let me just speak a word here. Sometimes Christians, we treat other believers as the enemy and not the true enemy, Satan. 
Jesus says, don't stop him. Look at verse 50. Don't stop him. Let him continue to cast out demons in my name, for he who is not against you is for you. He's not against you. He's on our side. He's doing the right thing. Later on in Luke, Jesus would, would mention the devil in Luke eleven twenty three. 23. Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This man is with Jesus because he's doing the work of ministry against the true enemy. Who's the true enemy? Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our wrestle's not against other people, flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The true enemy is not this other man. The true enemy is Satan. See, here's what the disciples lacked. They lacked a graciousness. And dare I say it, tolerance in the good way. To see that some people may serve Christ a little bit differently than they did. They were overcritical. They were legalistic. And they were elitist. Now, I need to be very, very careful here, so listen to me. I don't want you to be confused leaving this place. We are not talking about absolute, essential, dogmatic issues. We're not talking about the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, Jesus being the only way of salvation, heaven, hell, the authority, the inerrancy of Scripture. You guys know me. I've been here 16 years. I have tried hard under God's power to protect us from heresy, to to show discernment, to make sure that we have all our I's dotted and all our T's crossed when it comes to theological precision. So we're not talking about theological precision here. We're talking more about ministry methodology that you may not prefer. We never compromise on the gospel. We never compromise on the essentials. We never compromise on the authority of God's word. We never, ever compromise. But, that being said, hear me. We need to allow room for other Christians or other churches to do things in just a little bit different way than we maybe prefer. Because let me just give you a newsflash. This may be really hard to hear. You ready for it? Surgeon General warning, this may hurt. And I'm not going to whisper like Joe Biden. I'll say it loud. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to put that in there. Here's the, here's the point. Emmanuel Baptist Church does not have a corner on truth in Sterling, Colorado. We're not the only church in Sterling, Colorado. We're not the only church preaching the gospel. We're not the only church with the true gospel. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says this, We forget that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly of all wisdom. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospels preached and the devil's kingdom pulled down, though the work may be not done exactly the way we like. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted, Christ magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong. Let me give you a perfect example of this. Every Wednesday, I meet with six other area pastors for prayer. And we all come from a little bit different theological differences. And we've had some knockdown, drag out theological discussions. 
And I disagree wholeheartedly with some of my brothers in Christ. And they do some things that I would not do in a manual. And they do some things that maybe rub me the wrong way. And, and, and there's some, some methodologies that I would be like, I don't know if I would do that. But at the end of the day, here's the point. I love these men and I pray with these men and I celebrate their churches and I celebrate their ministries because they're preaching the gospel. Maybe not in the exact same way I would do it, but I champion them because they are holding to the truth of Scripture. And we can celebrate these victories. Here's the point. Making known the name of Christ is more important than who makes his name known. Now, I can be very guilty of this. I I, I have a check in my spirit this week because I can be overly critical. I can be hyper discerning and I can be very overly legalistic in how other people do something. And it may not be theologically wrong. It just may be that's not the way Pastor Sean would do it. That's not the way I would do it. I don't really like the way they did that. I don't like the way they said that. And I can be overly critical. I can be overly elitist. And I can think that I have the monopoly on truth. And I need to get rid of that attitude and realize that I'm acting the same way that these disciples are acting. We need to keep the focus on the true enemy. Who's the true enemy? Satan. Satan's the true enemy. Don't get into petty competition. Don't get into jealousy. Don't have this elitist mentality. Don't don't become so, so intolerant of how other Christians do things that you think that you're the only one that has a monopoly on truth. So in this passage of Scripture, the disciples lost focus They experienced spiritual macular degeneration. Things got fuzzy. The lines got wavy. They got preoccupied with things that didn't really matter. And they actually fell into the sin of pride, arrogance, elitism, jealousy, competition. So let me just ask you the question this morning. Where is your focus this morning? Is your focus on the cross? Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? Are you looking at that old rugged cross and and bowing in humility before a sovereign Savior who dared save you when he didn't have to and you're living in humility and joy because your sins have been forgiven through the power of Christ? Or is your focus on yourself? My pride, my ego, my ways, my agenda, competition, pettiness, jealousy, self-absorbed, self-centered. And is your focus on the true enemy, Satan? Are you hypercritical of other Christians? Have you become overly legalistic and maybe too critical that they're not doing things exactly the same way that you would want them to do? Again, we're not talking about theological issues that are definitely things we need to hold to. We're talking more second or third issues that really in the grand scheme of things don't matter. Are you overly critical? Are you showing grace to those who may do things a little bit different? Are you suffering from spiritual macular degeneration? If you're suffering from a lack of vision this morning, a lack of focus, I only know one thing that can help you, and it's not me. The one thing to help you would be for you to pray to the only one that can change your vision 
that can change your focus, that can put on the right glasses, that can do the right eye surgery, that can do the right heart surgery. You pray to Jesus to give you a renewed focus. You pray to Jesus to help you and me keep our eyes on the cross, keep our eyes off ourselves, and really focus on the true enemy, not other people. Hebrews 12, 2. We looked at it earlier. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Looking to Jesus. Some translations say, fix your eyes on Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Have your focus on Jesus. Everything's about Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Would we all this week keep our eyes focused on Jesus, to the glory of God and the power of the Spirit, so that we too would not fall into the sin that the disciples have here of pettiness, competition, legalism, elitism. But when we look at the old rugged cross, we would be humbled, we would be joyful, we would be thankful. Let's walk out of here today with our eyes fixed, not on ourselves, but on Jesus. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we ask, we plead, we beg that you would give us a renewed focus. How easy it is to lose focus on what truly matters. How easy it is to focus on ourselves, to become petty, to become competitive, to argue about who's the greatest, to get upset with other believers who may do things in just a slightly different way, to become elitist or legalistic. And it really shows that our gaze is not on the cross. For Jesus, if we had our eyes on you, we would be thankful, we would be humble. We would not be critical. We would not be competitive. We would be so thankful that you dared save us and we would live in abject humility because you saved us when you didn't have to. And Lord, help us to realize we have a true enemy, the devil. It's not flesh and blood. It's not other believers. It's a spiritual enemy, the devil. Lord, help us not to treat other believers as the enemy. Lord, help our focus this morning be renewed. Lord, do a spiritual eye surgery that would correct our vision, that would give us that renewed focus, that we would walk out of this place with our eyes focused on Jesus and not focused on ourselves. And Lord, we need your help for this. We can't do it ourselves. We need your grace. We need your power. We need your majesty. So would we all leave this place with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And it's in your name we pray these things, Lord. Amen.